Hello, and welcome to Baha'i Blogcast, with me, your host, Rain Wilson. This is where I interview members of the Baha'i faith and other friends from all over the world about their hearts and minds and souls, their spiritual journeys, what they're interested in, and what makes them tick. Enjoy. Hello there, dearest listeners. This is Rain Wilson and I'm offering a kind of introduction of sorts to this very special episode of Baha'i Blogcast. This podcast was recorded live with Dr. Stephen Phelps in Foundation Hall at the Baha'i House of Worship in Wilmette, Illinois. We titled the talk, the evening, um, Mysticism and Physics or something like that, Science and Mysticism or something like that, uh, Dr. Stephen Phelps has such a wide-ranging uh, body of work and areas of interest and expertise, including translation. He's basically fluent in Farsi and Arabic. Uh, he has a Ph.D. in physics from Princeton, an expert piano player, as I reference in the podcast. Uh, so translation work. Uh, he's a data analyst uh, and a philosopher and uh, a fascinating mind, so we kind of meander all over the place, and we had a couple hundred people there, as far as I could tell, from being in the front of the audience and emceeing the event, and there's a Q&A at the end of the podcast, uh, some very interesting questions from the participants. We had a lot of fun, and this is part of the ongoing Baha'i endeavor to have elevated conversations and include people into uh, conversations that explore life's biggest questions and issues of the day and issues of community and spirituality. Um, so this was our attempt at that. It was not a fireside. It was not a proclamation event. It's just having an interesting conversation. So I hope you enjoy it. I sure did. Hello. Hi, everybody. So nice to see you. Thanks for, thanks for coming out tonight. Um, I'm deciding whether to stand or sit. Stand. OK, I'm going to go standing. Uh, thanks so much for coming tonight. This is uh, a real pleasure to have this conversation. It's with one of my favorite human beings in the world. Uh, I just love his mind. I also love his heart. And a little bit I love his body. But <laughs> I uh, am really excited to have this um, conversation here uh, in Foundation Hall. Uh, I lived three blocks from here as, uh, as a young Baha'i youth when I was 16, 17, 18 years old, right down Linden Avenue. And... Um, I remember being up here. I think the last time I stood here was uh, co-hosting with the Baha'i young youth teens of the area uh, a Holy Day celebration. I think it was the Declaration of the Bob uh, right in this room. It must have been 80, 1983 uh, to date myself. And I was a security guard here uh, for three months. Um, I was the most unintimidating, <laughs> ineffective security guard <laughs> in Baha'i history, maybe even in security guard history, because I was 18 and I weighed all of about uh, 152 pounds. And um, 
but I remember coming in and checking in in the office there and putting on my little polyester uniform and security guard shoes and walking around. And what an incredible uh, bounty it was, what a gift it was to be able to, uh, to work here at the Mother Temple of the West. And this, this temple, um, really it is, the official name is a house of worship, which is a title I much prefer, a house of worship, because it's not a Baha'i temple, it's not where Baha'is come to worship. This is a house of worship for people of all faiths uh, to come and enjoy, to pray, to meditate, to commune, to hear music, to hear devotions, uh, to have gatherings in the gardens, to enjoy. Uh, so it's a house of worship really for all people, but it was such an incredible uh, time to be spending. Sometimes I did the night shift and just walking around the house of worship at night in the moonlight was uh, incredibly beautiful, uh, a beautiful time. And, and now I'm back. Um, uh, I've put on a lot of weight in my middle age since those days, but I'm really, really happy to be back here. And, you know, this, this mother temple of the West, uh, Baha'is call a, a Majrak al-Azkar, which is a, a dawning place of the mention of God. Um, there are uh, several of these all over the world. This is the, the mother temple of, of North America, of the West. And my favorite story about it is, um, uh, involves a woman named Nettie Tobin, who was an early, early Baha'i. We're talking about um, 1909, about. And the Baha'i faith had only been mentioned in North America in 1896 at the first parliament of world religions. And that's when some people started enrolling in, in, in the Baha'i faith. So she was a very early Baha'i and extremely poor. And she wanted to contribute something to the temple grounds. The, the land had just been purchased. And she didn't even have the money to take the L train. But she wanted to contribute something. So she went to a construction site and there was a, a, a rock that had been rejected for whatever building that they were building and that was thrown off to the side. And she said, oh, can I uh, use this rock? Can I use your wheelbarrow? Uh, or maybe she had a wheelbarrow. I don't know if there was a wheelbarrow involved. And she hoisted this big rock up and walked for this, with this thing for miles and miles and miles to bring it here uh, for the kind of the opening ceremony. It was really before the opening ceremony. And I've even heard stories, a, a, another version of the story that the wheelbarrow broke and that she had to drag it like on a tarp the last part of the way. Um, and this rejected stone and they put it out in the middle of the land. There was, this was before Foundation Hall had been built. It was before the, the edifice of the building itself had been created. And this was kind of the, the stone that they would kind of gather around or say prayers and picture like someday there's going to be a temple here above this stone. And the son of the founder of the Baha'i faith, Abdul Baha, uh, came to North America for 239 days in 1912. And he, uh, he visited the site. This was one of the central visits he made across North America. And he, uh, he blessed the stone. He laid his hands on the stone and he consecrated the stone to be the cornerstone of this incredible building, which didn't exist at the time. They were under a tent at the time. And he said the most incredible thing when he, when he blessed the stone. He says, now the temple is complete. 
meaning that's all you need to have a holy place, to have a holy shrine, to have a dawning place for, uh, a place for the dawning, the mention of, of God is that stone, which was brought with such love and such care and such sacrifice by one of the lowliest, poorest members of the Baha'i congregation at that time. And it's that spirit that fills this edifice, that fills these lands, that fills these acreage, that fills the hearts of the Baha'is that are engaged in service in their community and in discussions like one we're going to be having tonight, um, uh, elevated discussion about some, some really fascinating and obscure topics, but it all really springs from a cornerstone of love and sacrifice that very similar to what Nettie Tobin brought to this building. And when you're done here tonight, I think it'll still be open. Over here is the cornerstone room somewhere. You can actually go see the stone that, that I've been talking about. So I'm gonna introduce um, uh, a good, good friend of mine, a uh, fascinating human being. Stephen Phelps is coming out here in a minute. And he uh, has an extraordinary history. He grew up uh, a Baha'i. He went to Stanford University where he studied uh, philosophy and physics, and then got his doctorate from Princeton, fancy, uh, in, uh, in physics as well, and studied cosmology. So it's the ultimate physics. It's not like physics like what happens to a ball when you roll it down a hill. You know, this is like how did the universe begin and how do galaxies work and how does gravity and dark matter work uh, on all of these incredible uh, bodies and, and systems. So, um, and always continued his great love of philosophy. So it's a, it's a fascinating mind that is halfway between the great philosophers and the great scientists. You know, Princeton University is where Albert Einstein taught. So it, it's the legacy of cosmology being taught in those hallowed halls is, is quite extraordinary. Um, and then he um, stupidly went to the Baha'i International Center and worked there for 15 years. No, I'm just, I was totally kidding. And, um, and he worked uh, in a variety of capacities that are also really interesting that add to his uh, incredible Catholic interests. And that was, he was uh, a translator and an archivist and kind of organized the translation work and the documentation of the various writings of the founding figures of the Baha'i faith, especially Baha'u'llah, who was the founder of the Baha'i faith, whose name means the glory of God. So Baha'u'llah um, lived in the mid-late 1800s over in Persia in the Middle East and was banished all over the place and died in Haifa, near Haifa, Israel. And that's where the Baha'i Holy Land is in Haifa, Israel. And that's where the Baha'i International Center is as well, where the Baha'i archives are. And many of his tablets, letters, prayers, uh, writings, books, uh, all live there in the Baha'i archives. And Stephen has really read most of them. There are millions and millions of words that he wrote uh, in these tablets and letters throughout the years. So uh, he's fluent in Farsi and in Arabic. And if that doesn't make you sick enough, because uh, he's such a jerk that, um, he also plays a really mean piano, too. So maybe if we're lucky enough, 
boy, that would be really funny if we really pressured him to go play that piano when he was done. But that would be totally unfair. But uh, uh, a man of, uh, uh, of great interests and, um, uh, and working, and he's working right now, by the way, as a, as a data scientist. You know, so many of the startups and tech industries really need to like comb through vast amounts of data to kind of figure out what's going on behind the numbers. And they often turn to uh, cosmologists translator philosophers for that work, apparently. <laughs> so uh, please welcome up to the stage uh, Stephen Phelps. Hi, Stephen. Thanks for coming. Thank you. Can you guys see us OK in these chairs? No? Too bad. Um, uh, Stephen, thanks. Was that the best introduction you've ever gotten? Pro probably was. That's, yeah, that's kind of embarrassing. <laughs> you're very, you're very, he's modest too. Thanks. Go figure. What a jerk. Um, so thanks so much for coming. Um, part of what uh, Baha'is engage in is uh, elevated conversations about um, interesting topics that are applicable in some way to the world of service, the world of spirituality, the world of religion and faith, but also social justice uh, on many other topics. And uh, this is something that Baha'is are engaged in all over the world. So I, I love it, me personally, as I started a, a media company that was dedicated to pursuing life's big questions and biggest questions. And uh, I, I was really excited to have just a discussion with you here tonight about some of your ideas. Obviously, they're inspired by and based on the Baha'i faith, but they're not necessarily like Baha'i doctrinal ideas. You're not a, and there's no clergy in the Baha'i faith, so neither of us represent the Baha'i faith in any way. I'm just a kind of a mediocre actor, and you're a, a brilliant thinker. But um, so let's get started um, by saying, uh, We've been having a series of conversations over the last couple of days, and it's been it's been really interesting. But one a phrase that you used that I really loved was was the anchorless present, the anchorless present. You remember this phrase, and this really has to do with like where we're at as a species these days. So another interest of yours is kind of sociology and history and the grand sweep of historical ideas. Uh, so what what does this mean, the anchorless present? Well, one way to think about where we're at and the sweep of history is that it's just a sequence of events you know, with no particular rhyme or reason to them, with, with no meaning uh, or purpose or, or direction. Um, and a lot of people, I think, think about history that way. And history books then are just convenient ways of organizing chapter by chapter lists of kings and rulers and things like that. But another way of thinking about, about history is that ultimately there is a direction to it uh, in some vast cosmic sense, not necessarily a direction that can be, um, that can be sussed out in, in mathematical equations, but a direction which nevertheless is visible when we step back far enough and see, uh, and see the sweep of movement and evolution in the, in the universe. Uh, and this really begins you know, the anchorless present, you know, in a sense, begins 14 billion years ago with, you know, with, with the Big Bang and, and, the, and, the, and the evolution of the, of the cosmos seemingly in, in, in random configurations. But throughout the, 
this course of cosmic history, there, is, there are islands of stability, islands of order that somehow move against the trend of entropy and chaos uh, and are able to sustain the emergence of life and ultimately of consciousness. And for Baha'is, as well as I think for members of all of the great faith traditions of, of the world, life on this planet is not just a meaningless sequence of events, but it's driven ultimately by a higher, a higher meaning and a higher purpose that has something to do with the emergence of consciousness, um, which really begins even before the emergence of life itself, um, but that uh, really takes a, a, an accelerating turn with, with the appearance of life on Earth and with the appearance of the human species and, and, and with, with human civilization. And as is often the case, as we see in looking back in the archaeological record, the, the evolution of, of living things on this planet seems to take place as periods of relative stability punctuated by these periods of rapid change. We see the same sort of thing in human civilization, where there have been periods where life didn't really change that much for centuries or thousands of years, and then suddenly there's like a, a phase transition. There's a, there's a sudden shift in, in consciousness. Um, some authors recently have written about this very compellingly, like Yuval Harari is one who writes about, in his book Sapiens, he writes about the, the idea of, of you know, 100,000 years ago or so, um, abstract thought appears you know, in the human species for the first time and it enables us to organize at higher, at higher levels. Um, and there have been other phase transitions, other transitions historically throughout, throughout human history. How do we know that abstract thought evolved 100,000 years ago? Is that like cave art or cave burial practices? Cave art and burial practices are evidence that, that even you know, that, that long ago there was some, uh, some idea of abstract thought, the, the fact that, that, that people were buried with personal implements, right. with flowers. Uh, and, and so forth. In, in the writer Reza Aslan talks about that, how humans are obviously wired for transcendence. Yes. Wired for the divine impulse, because the very earliest signs of humans had to do with making art and also burial, and they were always buried with things that they would need for the great journey beyond this physical life. So they never just thought of like death as the end. For some reason, we were wired to think uh, yes. of ourselves on some kind of larger spiritual journey. Yes, and our, and our vision of what form that, that larger journey would take has, has also evolved and transformed over time. And there was a particular time in human history around, they say, around 200, 800, 800 BC. Uh, uh, Carl Jaspers uh, ta tags this, uh, this area of human history, the, the first axial, or the, the axial age. And during this time, during this several century period, across uh, all of the civilizations on the planet, from the far east of China to India to Persia to, uh, to Israel to, um, to, to, the, um, to the ancient Greeks, you have the almost simultaneous emergence of a particular way of thinking about the universe, which, um, which says that we are in the world but not of the world, that we are born into uh, an earthly state and our, and our purpose is to transcend our material state uh, and, um, and reach uh, a higher spiritual state. Um, and this way of thinking, it's called axial because it's almost as though there's an axis that runs through the world, there's a, there's a, which establishes a direction of things, you know, that, that, uh, that, that things tend towards transcendence. 
Um, and this actual axial picture of the world, which was a, um, which was really part of the, the foundational way of thinking of peoples from that time up until fairly recently, uh, came under uh, attack, um, and particularly a few hundred years ago with the scientific revolution and with the enlightenment, uh, with when we have emerging for the first time the ability to understand the world based on the application of reason, uh, rather than appealing to the presumptive authority of, of the past. Um, and this led to a kind of a collapse of this two-story structure, the idea that there's earth and heaven, the idea that there's a material and the spiritual. Uh, this You're talking about kind of a is, duality that existed in Western yes, which spiritual was thought. perhaps best articulated by Descartes in the 1600s. It goes under the name of philosophical dualism. It's, it's maybe the, the, the pinnacle of this, of this axial mode of thinking applied to philosophy. And this Cartesian dualism, this idea that, that the world is comprised of a, uh, of, of a physical uh, world of appearances that we can see and also an, an invisible world behind it um, is, is corroded, is, is perhaps fatally undermined uh, by the advance of science and our ability to understand the world more and more in terms of its appearances without having to appeal to this underlying invisible layer of causes to explain things. You know, if initially we, we explained lightning and the waves and the, 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 the passing of the seasons and, uh, and, and other things as spiritual forces, literally, you know, by gods are responsible for these things. As we understand our environment more and more, the, the space for the operation of, the, of these invisible spiritual forces is gradually pushed out as, as our understanding of the world is, as, as purely driven by, by natural laws uh, takes over. And that kind of brings us a bit to the, to the anchor, the idea of the anchorless present, which is that we are now, we're living in a culture, particularly the culture of the West, which is, whose ethics is still grounded in this axial way of thinking. But the foundations of it, the philosophical foundations of it, the possibility of, of thinking uh, in this dualistic way has been seriously eroded uh, by the by the advance of, of scientific thought, and so we, we end up with like a building with no foundations. You know, the, the building is the is the edifice to, of of Judeo Christian morality, uh, particularly in uh, in, the, in the West, um, and the foundations have been knocked out. And so you have a building that's over the last you know century or two, and and I think with accelerating force over the last few decades, is is starting to to crumble, is starting to topple, um, and. And that leads to a kind of a crisis of, of meaning because, well, where do we get our meaning? If our meaning is no longer grounded in these unchallengeable authorities of the past, sacred texts uh, and, uh, and, sacred, uh, and sacred people, then where can we recover a ground of, of meaning in the world? Where can we recover a ground of, uh, that helps to determine what, what actions are the right actions? And you, you were talking before when we were speaking about, about how Nietzsche fits into that. So, Nietzsche's yes. God is dead uh, yes, kind of he, sums up this, this collapse. He sums it up. He was the, one of the first people in the, in the mid-19th century to, I think, correctly diagnose what was going on. You know, he, he saw this erosion of the, uh, of, of the, of the Christian worldview, uh, the, the philosophical erosion of the Christian worldview from, from the Enlightenment. He saw that it was, that it was no longer tenable. Um, and so while I think he more or less correctly diagnoses the ailment, I think he incorrectly prescribes the cure. 
you know, for him, the cure was, uh, well, let's reject the entire edifice of, of morality that's built, been built on top of it. Uh, let's reject Christian morality as a kind of, uh, maybe as a kind of slave morality that was, that was originally put in place by those who were the oppressed group, you know, within the ancient Roman Empire, uh, and, and, was, uh, and was, was, was developed in order to turn the tables on the oppressors. That was how he saw it. Uh, and so he thought the, the right way forward then was to reject entirely the Christian morality so he and, and had to a, go back. He had a little bit of a Marxist view of, of the origins of Christianity, that it was uh, ultimately a power struggle ultimately. behind it, because so many of the early Christians were, were slaves and disempowered peasants. Yeah, I don't know if I'd use the word Marxist, but he certainly didn't see any divine origin. He saw it ultimately as a, as a, human, as a human invention. And, and, he, and he thought the, the right way forward was to go back to say the, 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 the morality of the, of the ancient Greeks, you know, of the Homeric uh, heroes. You know, heroes, you know, be like Achilles, be strong, you know, be the Superman, be the, the Ubermensch, uh, create your own values. You know, don't, humility is out the window. You know, the caring about your neighbor, you know, out the window. It's, you know, be strong and be, you know, a vital force in the world. He saw this as a very positive sort of uh, turn. Uh, saw it as a very joyful and, and energetic and, you know, kind of a philosophy. But ultimately it, it turns into the philosophy of, uh, ultimately it can be used and was used disastrously, as we know, in, in, in the 20th century as a, as a tool for, further tool for oppression, because you have this idea that, well, the, the strong ultimately will dominate the weak, and that's, uh, and that's the way of things. But he had diagnosed the fact that the, the, the thought that came of age in the, in the axial age yes. that of this kind of, of morality and God um, uh, was, was, was collapsing as we entered the Enlightenment and, and science and reason and logic were uh, replacing God. Yes, he saw it as a, as a collapse, but rather than seeing this as a, as a crisis, as many have seen it as a crisis, you know, the crisis of, of the modern age, the, the Baha'i writings see it more as an opportunity. Uh, and what makes this an opportunity? It's, it's that the idea in the first place that the world can be described in these dualistic terms as, as, as a visible, uh, physical world, material world, uh, upon which is superimposed uh, an invisible world, and there's some invisible web of causal connections between them. Uh, this idea of, of Cartesian dualism is collapsed by Baha'u'llah, by the founder of the Baha'i faith himself. Uh, when he identifies the, the, the spiritual with the material, you know, he identifies the, the will of God operating, which is this invisible realm, the primal will, with the laws of nature. He said they're really the same thing. And that for all, all along, it's been a case of mistaken identity to, to, to put one label on this and one label on that and to carry forward as if they were two separate things. Uh, but what we have instead is an idea that, uh, that, that what we have always considered as the physical and, uh, and the spiritual are really two aspects of the same thing. Ultimately, there is one reality, one reality that is deeply interconnected, uh, and depending on one's viewpoint, one either sees it or understands it as spiritual or sees it or understands it as physical. It's like, um, it's like this glass of water. Mm. If you cast the shadow of this glass of water you know, on the table, you know, it, it, it looks like you know, a rectangle, 
but if I, if I tipped it 90 degrees, which, which I won't do <laughs> until I finish it, <laughs> if you tipped it 90 degrees, it looks like a circle. And so you have this, you know, reality is this higher dimensional thing. And depending on how you orient it, the shadow it casts upon a two-dimensional surface may look quite different. You know, a circle and a square are two very different sorts of geometrical objects. It's like, although our, our minds are these two-dimensional objects that can only contain reality in a limited number of dimensions. Mm -hmm. And we can understand, uh, we, and some people will always look at reality as the circle and some will always look at it as a square. There will always be, there are, there are different spiritual perception. archetypes in the world. There are different kinds of perception, which are sometimes intrinsic to different kinds of people. And sometimes one person may go through these stages themselves. Bahá'u'lláh writes about both kinds in his early mystical writings, which, which he wrote in the 1850s, where sometimes he, he takes the, the, the imagery and, the, and some of the, uh, and some of the, the stages uh, of the spiritual quests that were, uh, that were described by the, per, by, the, by the Sufis, by the uh, Islamic Sufis uh, many centuries before. Uh, and he recasts it for, for his own purposes in describing the, the spiritual quest as something which, it, which produces a kind of irreducible diversity of human spiritual perspectives, which is a feature and not a bug of the human experience, and which one has to embrace on its own terms, and which one has to find a way to love and accept everyone all people, uh, realizing that everyone is at a different stage of this spiritual journey and that you have different spiritual types. Some are always going to see the circle and some are always going to be the square. Some are going to be very, always see things in terms of the meaning behind it, always see things in terms of, of God's purpose in things, you know, always be, uh, and, and, their, uh, and their personal mode of achieving transcendence is through prayer to an invisible God with whom uh, they have a personal relationship. And there are other forms, you know, equally valid forms of, of spiritual uh, experience, uh, which, which look at it as a square with all the angles and the, you know, and, and all of the, you know, the, the rules and, and, and relationships, see things logically. Um, you know, if, if they pray, it's not so much that they're praying to an invisible uh, personal God, but it's more as though they're orienting their inner beings to the, to the currents that are flowing through the, un through the universe. And, 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 and acting upon that inner orientation is, uh, is the answer to their prayer. In the end, it's the same thing. It, it, it produces the same result, but it's a different kind of, of, of inner orientation. That, it reminds me of the book Flatland. Do you ever read that? Yeah. That classic book. That's yes. a, the book that takes Edwin place. Edwin Abbott. Oh, very nice. Uh, Two-dimensional world and creatures that inhabit this two-dimensional world. And then is it a sphere that goes through the world? And so they see the sphere as a small Points. circle and then a larger, a circle, larger yeah. circle, larger circle. And, uh, but they don't have the ability in Flatland to see the totality of the sphere. Yeah. Are there spiritual lessons to be derived from Flatland? Yeah, and, and, and in, a later, in a later chapter of Flatland, one of the, one of the, the, the shapes is knocked out of Flatland by, uh, by a three-dimensional creature and it finds itself you know, sort of circular, careening through three-dimensional space and trying to understand what it sees as it looks back on this plane that was, you know, that was its entire world before that uh, and becomes quite confused. So that's like us at death, perhaps? Perhaps that's, uh, perhaps that's like us at death, perhaps like that's us at certain moments in, in, in our lives. Baha'u'llah describes in, in, back to one of these mystical works called the Seven Valleys, one of the later valleys is called the Valley of Wonderment, which could easily, just as easily have been translated, the value of confusion or bewilderment. 
Uh, and this is, you know, it's a later stage in the spiritual, spiritual journey after one has come to a certain awareness of the, of the unity underlying all things. Uh, and that throws him into this utter state of confusion. Uh, and I think, as I've read and, and understood it, I think one of, the, one of the reasons for this spiritual confusion is the dawning awareness that the self is ultimately illusory. Wait, what? That, that the self is an illusion. Uh, it's, it's an illusion which is formed by the, the temporary existence of our bodies. Um, and we think of it as, this, uh, as a permanent bundle of thoughts, perceptions, memories, uh, virtues and vices and so forth. Personality. Uh, personality. Uh, and, but as Bahá'u'lláh describes the later stages of the, of the spiritual journey, particularly as he moves into the, the seventh uh, valley of the seven valleys, which is this valley of annihilation, uh, is, is, the, is the word for it, uh, utter nothingness. Uh, he says in that, in that state, all that the seeker hath from, from marrow to skin is burned away until nothing remains but the friend. Uh, and, in, uh, and in an earlier Sufi work that, that's also modeled, uh, that from which the Seven Valleys was modeled, there's the story of the, of the moths and the flame. Uh, and uh, there were a bunch of moths and a flame, and, uh, and they wanted to know what it was, so they sent one of their, one of their members to go and investigate. Um, and, uh, and the moth came back and, and, and described you know, the flame, and, and the old moth said, uh, he knows nothing of the flame. You know, and they sent the moth back to investigate further, and he gets closer and closer and circles around the flame until he, in a shower of sparks and, and flame, his wings are burned and, uh, and he vanishes from sight. And then the old moth turns to the other moths and says, now, now he knows the secret of the flame. Um, and the secret of the flame was the, you know, the annihilation. annihilation of self. Uh, a beautiful Baha'i prayer puts this in terms of the, the, the self being like a reed uh, and it's usually full of pith, and, and one wants to become like a hollow reed from which this pith of self has been blown so that one may become a clear channel through which grace and the music of the divine can flow uh, through to others. Uh, and that can only happen when, when the self is emptied out. Well, what remains then when the self is emptied out? What do we talk about then when we talk about um, spiritual relationship? What, what or who has a, is praying to God in the state of utter selflessness. Well, also the hollow reed that has the pith blown out of it can become a flute. That's and right. That's, that's how flutes exactly. are made to make beautiful music. Exactly. So the pith of self gets in the, gets way, in the way of, of the, the beauty music. of music. Yeah. It's in the way of the music. And so, so one of the, I, I guess, more potentially, I guess, soul-shattering soul things that, that, that I've seen, and this is in, actually in the writings of the Bob, who is the, you know, the, the co co-founder of the, of, of the Baha'i faith, who writes some of the more, I think, mystically charged and, and, and challenging works. Uh, the Bob writes about the self, ultimately, that it is a, a mode of the divine self-remembrance. And that phrase kind of has to be unpacked a little bit, because you know, what, what do you mean by, you know, mode of the divine self-remembrance? Uh, and the idea, as far as, as, far as, as I understand it, is that ultimately, it, if one tries to take you know, a thousand steps back and describe, well, what, how do we describe what the universe is, what's going on in, in the world at the, at the largest scales? Uh, ultimately, it is, it is waking up. You know, the universe is in a constant process of, of waking up to its own self. So it is the continually emerging process of the emergence 
of self-consciousness, which is identical to the, to the consciousness of God. I mean, God is, what does God mean? It's a word that we use to describe these sorts of matters of ultimate concern. So we have a circle, we have the idea of a circle. We have the idea of the, of the circle wrote, turning upon itself continually. It's a dynamic kind of a circle. We're all along the circle at some point. You know, physical evolution is, is one part of that circle and cosmic evolution prior to the appearance of life is part of that circle. And human, social, and cultural evolution and individual spiritual evolution is, is a part of that circle. And it's all a matter of, it all can be seen as a mode of the divine self-remembrance in the sense that it all boils down to the self reflecting upon its own reality. And its own reality is ultimately a spark of the divine. That which lies within us, Baha'u'llah says, he's placed within us the essence of his light. There's, it's as though we're, our souls are all mirrors which reflect you know, the light of something far greater. So when one realizes, when, when one strips away uh, the, that pith of self, uh, and the, until the only thing that remains is that reflected image of the divine within the heart, uh, then, then the answer to the question, well, who is saying the prayer in this state of utter self-surrender and evanescence, who's saying the prayer? Well, it's God saying the prayer to himself. You know? and, then we get, and then we arrive at that statement by the Bab, which, which talks about the soul as a mode of the divine self-remembrance. You know, he goes on in that, in that passage and says, you know, look at thy, thyself, thy true self is, um, is God's you know, revelation to himself and for himself, you know, he is thou thyself, and, and thou art he himself. Except uh, that indeed that he is that he is, and thou art that thou art. So it always ends up being kind of like a Zen, you know, on the one hand, it's, you know, one, one's inner spiritual reality is identical to the, to the divine, but, but in another the, sense. Isn't that the Christian idea of being created in God's image? Isn't absolutely. that a different It's another spin, that's that. another take on that same idea. Yeah. And, and some version of this idea of the, of self-surrender and nothingness and oneness of the divine is, going, is found in, in some at least mystical school of, of, all, of, the, of all of the world faith traditions, from, from native traditions to you know, versions of Christian mysticism, certainly Islamic Sufism is, is, is based around that. Uh, and then going east in, uh, in, in, in Taoism and in Buddhism uh, and, and in certain schools of Hinduism as well, you have this very similar idea of this, of the soul ultimately being um, uh, being a, a, a mode of divine reflection. Isn't there, a, isn't there an element of saying namaste is like I salute the divine within you? Yes, a per perfect example of yeah. that. Yeah, so but, we're, and we're taught as Baha'is to look for the divine in other people. If yes. we see their mere humanity, we're going to see their failings and their character defects, yes. but we, we always search for the spark of the divine within yes. the person. And that's one way of thinking about awareness and acknowledgement and embrace of the principle of the oneness of humanity in the deepest possible sense. You know, you can think of, you can think of, 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 I don't know, going along with the idea that mankind is one, that humanity is one, in a very pragmatic sense. Well, it's, we're one because we're all on this planet together. We, we share it. We've got to work together. We're all so, homo sapiens. We're all homo That's, the, that's well, one. That's, a, that's another level, is to say, well, we're all the same species and we share the oh, same okay. DNA. So that would be like a second level. A third level of unity would be, would be to say something like, well, you know, I, I'm like a little a flame of the divine and you're a flame of the divine. You know, we're all, you know, we're all, uh, we all have some, some, something that we share in common, which is, which is higher than the physical. 
which is some kind of spiritual essence. But I think higher still, you know, a, a fourth way of thinking, and maybe the deepest way of thinking about the unity of humanity is it's not that we're separate flames, but we're actually reflecting the same light. So that ultimately, in the end, there is no true distinction between your consciousness and my consciousness. You know, it, the fact that, we, that we're sitting here at, at, at talking to each other uh, uh, and that others are in the audience listening to us is, is an illusion which is, you know, which is produced by the, by the fact that we're temporarily occupying these you know, corporeal forms. But what's really happening, you know, in the, in, if you could look into the spiritual realm, is basically light is being scattered in all directions, you know, and it's all light from the same, from the same source. Of course, the reality and the day-to-day -day of life is not that way. I mean, we're, we're talking at this level where, which few in history probably have experienced. Uh, and, and, and people in general, I think, maybe only experience in flashes. And so we also have to deal with the, the pragmatic reality of life, which is that we live in a world in which the vast majority of us don't see the world in that way. Uh, and, and that brings us back to the, to the irreducible fact of diversity. You, know, you have spiritual, mystical types who love this stuff and who, and who read this stuff and who get you know, deeply into it and, 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 and try to approach that state you know, to, to, to whatever degree they can. And you have others for whom that's just not their thing. You know, that, that, that's not where, where they're going. And, and that's fine. It's a feature, uh, not a bug, of, of, of the human condition. So how do we produce then, you know, the pragmatic problem in the world today is how do we produce a, a, a community of people who can act together coherently for the greater good of the human race? Well, before we get there, because that takes me back to, again, the first question, the anchorless present. So in my take, uh, we see uh, the younger generations today for whom depression is up, anxiety is up, uh, suicide has increased by 30% over the last 20 years. Um, in this anchorless present where searching for the truth um, and searching for meaning while all systems seem to be breaking down around yes. us. If you look at uh, all the systems, the economic system, agricultural system, I was telling you the other day, I was reading that George R. R. Martin, the, the founder of uh, you know, the Game of Thrones, uh, had talked about how the system of online fanboys had completely broken down because they were at each other's throats and they're threatening each other and it's like all and these are just like geeky fans of science fiction and fantasy and comic books and I think you look system by system by system by system they're all collapsing and as part of a symptom of this anchorless present because aren't there several promises that have been made by science there's promises that have been made by history, some grand schemes, some grand scenarios, some, some grand arches of history, and, uh, that, and, and promises made by religions that are, are not working. They're not panning out. They're not proving to be, uh, to be true or useful. So that's why one of the many reasons, uh, besides social media and, um, and like angry birds, that uh, society is breaking down. Yeah. Well, as I, th I think Yates said, the, you know, things fly apart, the center cannot hold, 
the, you know, the worst are filled, filled with passionate intensity and the best are, I can't remember how it goes, you know, filled, you know, are, are, are sunk in, the, are in this lassitude of uh, inability to move. That's where we're at. And he wrote this a century ago. Um, and, and, we're, and if anything, that, that crisis has only deepened in the last century. And, and of course, we're seeing it particularly, you know, sharply in very recent years in, in rates of depression and suicide and, uh, and drug overdose and so forth. I think to, to diagnose this, this illness, you know, as, 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 as Baha'u'llah has diagnosed it, the, il the illness ultimately is, is disunity in various forms. And that disunity is the primary cause of that, of that disunity is, is this inability of the spiritual communions of the planet to realize that ultimately there is only one religion and that it's us who have divided it up into separate sects and, uh, and followings. Baha'u'llah says it's, he doesn't even claim that his own message uh, is a new religion to stand alongside the other religions in, its, in a kind of a competition for membership or numbers. He says it, uh, and this is said in, 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 um, in, one, in a recent Baha'i statement that Baha'u'llah came to recast the very conception of religion as the principal force impelling the development of consciousness. And these sorts of processes take place on the time scale of centuries, though. I mean, we, we think and naturally on the time scale of decades, maybe a human lifetime, maybe one generation back, because you know, that's all, all the people we know. And so we look at the, at, at the, at the particularly at the twists and turns in the political fortunes and, and what's, what's happening on, on the political stage uh, on, in, the, in the world today among the various nations. And if, if we, step back and see the overall motion of things, um, I think we would have more hope. It's easy to get, to get caught up in the, in the, um, in the crises of, of the present and, uh, and to forget that the great movements of civilization uh, in, in which we are participating um, are, are centuries in the making. And I think one can look, for example, at this whole process of human civilization from the scientific revolution and the enlightenment, you know, a few hundred years ago to the present day is really part of one, one continual process that has had different subphases. But the overall theme of the process, one, and I think this could give us a bit of hope, is that humanity is passing through a turbulent period of adolescence. You know, it's, it's passed through stages of infancy, of childhood, uh, in, in many ways, very much analogous to, to what happens in the, you know, in the maturation of, of an individual human being. And, and we're going through this turbulent period of adolescence in which all of the wisdom of the past is rejected, just on principle. You know, we're going to figure it out on our own. We're going to make all the mistakes. Individuation. Individuation is taking place. You know, individual human beings are finding the full range of their, of their motion and of their autonomy. And this is a good thing, this is not a bad thing. This is not something that we wanna turn back the clock on, but this is something which is part and parcel of the spiritual, collective spiritual evolution of humans on this planet. And that means there's a lot of pain involved, but at the same time, one can look as, for instance, Steven Pinker has uh, in some of his books, you know, looking at the glass being more half full than half empty. There are, uh, you know, statistically far fewer wars now than, than, there, than there were in the past and, and, and so on and so forth. And all Certain of this, think, diseases have been completely, completely eradicated. Yeah. So I think all of this can give us hope 
for a brighter future for humanity is that on the time scale of centuries, we may be on the cusp of a, the greatest phase transition of all, uh, the greatest transformation in human culture and consciousness of all, of all, which is this emerging, dawning awareness of the oneness of the human race and the emergence onto the, to the scene of a truly interconnected global society. We're already seeing this inevitably emerge on the, in the emergence of, uh, of technological means of transportation and of instantaneous communication with the internet within the lifetimes of, of most people in this room. Um, and so there's, a, there's a, a great deal to hope for. What has lagged is the, are the endemic forces of tribalism, of nationalism, ultimately of various forms of self-centeredness which are still keeping us from making those, uh, those essential global connections that can uh, enable a global civilization to, uh, to emerge. And that's the ultimate purpose of, of Baha'u'llah's message, which is to take the human reality, which is by nature quite centered on its own self, on, on its own physical needs, you know, well, Maslow's needed, hierarchy of needs. It's we needed there. to have self-interest. It's a thing. To know? survive. Right. It's, we wouldn't have survived as a species if we didn't have... Of course. It's not a bad self-interest at the you know, center of our being. But upon that sort of base layer of the hierarchy of needs, one builds the, you know, the, the other layers. Uh, and the higher layers in this hierarchy of needs are self-realization, and ultimately even higher than that is a realization of, uh, of others around oneself. Uh, this is, I think, one of the more really profound things that I've seen in the writings of the Bob, that um, there's a very short uh, a p a piece of writing where he says that there are essentially three keys to happiness. And he says one, one of them is the golden rule, and another one of them is always telling the truth. And the third one is never being satisfied with anything uh, over which one has influence when one is aware that it has a higher degree or a higher station. So repeat that one again, the last Never one? Never being satisfied with anything in, in one's you know, orbit of influence when one is aware that it has a higher station, when it has a higher degree. Mm -hmm. uh, and that idea, I think, fundamentally orients, helps to orient human consciousness outwards. You know, it, it, that includes the self. It includes you know, self-realization and, and doing one's best and, and, and fulfilling one's own potential. But it also includes you know, everything around oneself, starting with one's, with one's uh, immediate surroundings, you know, clean your room, et cetera, you know, and, and, be, you know, and, and, and be concerned with the environment within which one is embedded and of which one is a part. And also people around one, one's friends and family and in expanding circles, Isn't it be kind of, concerned about that. It's kind of a, it's kind of a capacity building in a way, it's too. a capacity building, and it is ultimately an, it is the realization of this ultimately this ultimate goal of creation, which is the expansion of consciousness in its widest possible in widest possible circles. And on this planet, that involves expanding one's consciousness until it includes not just every person on the planet, with one, which which one becomes feels responsible for in some way, one feels connected with in some way, but also one's environment. So I was talking to my wife about this the other day about how, hey, hey, honey, remember when we were like living in Silver Lake and all we had to do in the day was like walk the dog and maybe mail a letter, but that was like our entire day and it's all that we could kind of, kind of do is like, let's have some coffee and, 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 
and maybe I'll take a shower and like, um, and we just didn't, and like our lives now are so much more uh, just full and rich and yeah, there's busy, there's a, there's a trade-off there too and, and stressful and, and anxiety-ridden, but we're, um, you know, we're, I don't know, we're, I feel kind of good because we're, we're both kind of working towards, you know, uh, you know, working in nonprofit or creating art and, you know, and connecting with more people and whatnot. And um, the, th the things you're doing with, with girls' education in Haiti, for yeah, example, is amazing. But I, I, I'm not trying to, like, ring my own bell. I'm just kind I of am. saying, like, <laughs> thank you. But I, I'm just saying that going back, you know, going back, like, there was, there's been a consciousness raised. Like, what, it, was, it was astounding how, how limited our consciousness was about, you know, what one should and could do in a day. For instance, yeah. yeah, I don't know. Yeah, what do I know? You know, the um, so the the thing, the other thing that you were talking about that that um, uh, that, that 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 struck a chord with me is that young people these days often get very confused because they see so many great things happening in the world. They see a Black Lives Matter movement or a Me Too movement, you know, accelerating the inevitable, you know, uh, tide of human rights and social justice. You know, they see, you know, certain aspects of technology making their lives better and the world's better. There's less war, there's less famine, there's less people dying on a daily basis. So they, you know, but then they get confused because at the same time, things are, are falling apart with great rapidity, and there's there's climate change, and and the political system is is at an all-time low. Everyone kind of agrees on that. Um, so many uh, so many terrible things happening too, and still so much racism and and hatred and distrust, and we feel like much more on the verge of war now than we were, you know, 20 or 30 years ago, even more than than the Cold War. Um, so young people don't know where to look and I think you know I think about this Baha'i phrase about we're in the process of integration and at the same time disintegration so Baha'u'llah talks about you know a new world order being created and an old world order falling apart at the same time and I I think that I've I've found that helpful in my own thinking of how to look at the world. Like there are some really great things and there are some really terrible things happening at the exact same time. It's kind of hard to hold both of those dichotomies in one's brain at the same time. But I think it is, it's, it's a really helpful perspective to see that this is kind of our turbulent adolescence that we're going through. There are positive things about adolescence. Adolescence is creative and passionate and, and finding one's voice. And there are really dangerous, dark things potentially about, uh, about adolescence. Yeah, it's, it's as though we are, um, one, can, one can find, I think oftentimes, uh, insight and inspiration in looking at processes in nature which are often mirror images of processes in the spiritual world. This is one of the principles in the, uh, in the Baha'i writings, that there's almost as though there's archetypal patterns that are repeated at different levels. Uh, and one of those patterns one sees in the forest, you know, quite, quite naturally through natural processes, lightning mainly, uh, forest fires are you know, ignited and sweep through forest and, and burn through all of the underbrush uh, and are quite destructive, uh, but at the same time, um, forest fires are a necessary part of the life cycle of the forest. 
and in cleaning out the underbrush, they, they open up the light uh, for you know, the seeds of the taller trees to germinate. Um, in one way, I think one can look at what the processes of the present day is like a, a forest fire sweeping through. Uh, and a lot of things are being burned down. Uh, there's a lot of destruction of time-honored traditions, of, 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 of sacredly held ideas. I mean, an example of this, uh, I think, are the, uh, the, the New Atheist Movement, you know, where there's, um, there's I think, a lot, and one can, can, can support and criticize almost in equal measure what's being, you know, what's being said uh, in, in the works of, of the New Atheist, because in, in one sense, it is, it's quite a, a great thing and a great service that they're accomplishing in helping to clear away the cobwebs and helping to, uh, to really discern what's true from what's superstition. Uh, because you know, truly there, there, there is and has always been an, an enormous amount of superstition associated with human beliefs about, you know, about spirituality and the, and the spiritual world. Um, and it's a great service to clear away those, those superstitions um, to, to see what tall trees remain after the wildfire sweeps through. Mm -hmm. So you've spent a lot of time studying physics and a lot of time studying spirituality, and you've spoken about these two powers of the world a, a great deal. What, what are the laws of physics that apply to spirituality or to a spiritual journey or to a spiritual life? Um, that's a great question. Uh, Thanks. I think a great, a great answer was given by, um, a great answer was given by Frank Wilczek uh, in his book, A Beautiful Question, which was published a few years ago. And, he's, uh, and in this book, he, he examines some of the conceptual pillars of the edifice of, of, of modern theoretical physics. And he identifies these conceptual pillars as, uh, as uh, relativity, uh, complementarity, symmetry, and invariance. Um, and one can unpack each one of these and it would take a while to unpack those. Those are physics terms. But these are physics terms, but at the same time they have other, uh, other meanings to them. And he himself says these ideas, these, these concepts form the heart of, of, uh, of modern theoretical physics. And they should but do not yet form the heart of, of, of modern um, philosophy and spirituality. That's what he said. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. uh, and I and I really I really love that statement. I appreciated that statement. So, so how would you apply some of those laws to spirituality? I, I think the most obvious one to me is the principle of relativity. Um, the, you know, the, the principle of relativity in physics being that that observers in different reference frames that may be moving at different speeds or accelerated reference frames relative to each other will observe space and time and matter and energy in different kinds of proportions. And events which may be simultaneous in one reference frame won't be simultaneous in another reference frame. So it fundamentally undermines our intuitions about the stability of, of events and of, and, of, and of space and time. Um, but ultimately, the, the principle of relativity doesn't say, well, that any set of measurements is equal to any other set of measurements. You know, there's a limited subset of, of, of ways of correctly describing a system. And that subset is defined by the internal symmetries, you know, the fundamental symmetries that, that govern, uh, that govern, and by symmetries I mean roughly the patterns, the mathematical patterns that govern, uh, that, that govern uh, events. Um, that idea of, of relativity has a direct parallel and application 
uh, in the spiritual domain, in the principle of the relativity of religious truth, which is one of the central teachings of the, of the Baha'i faith. And that doesn't mean relative religion. It doesn't truth. mean relativism in the sense that, well, anything goes now. Uh, it's relativity, I think, in precisely the same way that, the, that Einstein's special theory of relativity doesn't say any, any set of measurements goes. You know, there's a subset of measurements, and, and those are related to each other in certain ways. But there are different ways of, of viewing things, and those different ways of viewing things can all be valid. This principle of relativity in, in the spiritual domain extends, you can think of it as extending just as, just as the special theory of relativity in, in mathematics, you can think of the spiritual principle of relativity also as extending in space as well as in time. What, what's the time component of the spiritual principle of relativity? It's the fact that from age to age, the, the spiritual expressions of, of humanity's encounter with the divine have changed. You know, to put it in, in fewer words, the different religions of the world uh, have quite different social teachings and, and as, well as, uh, as well as theological uh, principles. Um, and one can, either, one can either hold that this represents some fundamental contradiction, or one can say, well, there's, a, there's some invariant principle involved here. There's something that remains the same amidst all of these changing forms throughout time from one religion to the other. Baha'u'llah, by the way, identifies what this is. He says, everything has changed in religion from age to age, except for, he says, the law of love, which like a fountain ever flows and is ever renewed. So in time, the principle of the relativity of religious truth emerges in what Baha'is often call the idea of progressive revelation. Uh, but the principle, the spiritual principle of relativity also extends in space as well, just like, just like uh, Einstein's theory. And it extends in space between one heart and another, between one person and another, because we're all on different stages of the spiritual path together, and we all see the truth differently. And this is all at one snapshot in time. Uh, and and um, to the extent that, that Baha'u'llah says the good deeds of the righteous are the sins of the near ones. Uh, what does he mean by this? You know, everyone's on a path, and to, to those who are genuinely on the path and genuinely striving and, and, uh, and, and have reached some degree of, of spiritual awareness, nevertheless, you know, there are others whom one would consider to be completely off base, completely wrong. And Baha'u'llah says, that's okay. They're actually both correct within their own, within their own point of view. So that's a principle of relativity that, that extends uh, in space. Likewise, with complementarity and symmetry, one can find corresponding spiritual, spiritual principles uh, underlying them. It's a fascinating, it's a fascinating topic that one that really has has no end. It's, it's kind of a rabbit hole that has no bottom. When I was a little Baha'i kid and taking Baha'i classes, the Baha'i teacher brought in a giant magnet and then all these filings and nails and stuff like that. And she was like, hey kids, play with the nails and throw them on the magnet. And we're like, wow. And then she was like, that's love. Baha'u'llah says that that's love drawing the nails to the magnet. And I was like, bull. That's, uh, that's, you know, that's magnetism. That's electromagnetism. It's a, it's a power. She's like, no, no, no. It's love. It says that love holds the planets together. And that's what Abdul Baha says. And so, so what is it? Will you answer this question yeah. between me, finally, between me it's and love. my Sunday school teacher? Is it love or is it electromagnetism? Please <laughs> help me out. It's, it's the same thing, and that's, that's another <laughs> no! manifestation of the principle of relativity. There's a, there's a beautiful letter of Abdu'l-Baha where he says, it begins, love is the secret. 
Uh, and it goes on and on describing what love is. And of course, it's, the, it's the, the, the bond that unites the hearts. And at some point, like you mentioned, he said, it's the supreme magnetic force that directs the motions of the planets in their, in their, in their orbits. And um, taking, just sort of taking that as a jumping off point, um, one then can make the mental exercise of imagining the operation of the forces of love in the universe prior even to the emergence of human beings who experience love in the way that we normally think about it. But atoms experience love as well through electromagnetism. Gravity is, is, is love on the, on the most cosmic scale. Um, and what does gravity do? Gravity pulls elements together and leads to the formation of stars and planets and galaxies and enables the emergence of higher forms of consciousness. So one can think of love and consciousness and unity as, as three very closely interconnected spiritual principles that at, at an early stage or at one level can be described perfectly by mathematical laws. You know, the law of gravity perfectly described by, by, uh, by equations. But as, uh, as matter uh, becomes organized in higher and higher levels of organization, as, uh, as um, life emerges for the first time on the planet, first in these unicellular creatures and then in, in, in higher degrees, you know, plants and animals and finally humans, one can think of what's going on here it ultimately is that the force and power of love is being manifested in higher and higher degrees. Uh, and consciousness is being manifested in higher and higher degrees. In a way, everything is conscious. In a, in, a, in a way, you know, even the rocks are conscious. In a, I mean, not in the way that the, the dictionary defines it, but in the sense that even a rock has a relationship with the earth, an invisible relationship with the earth. If you drop the rock, it falls to the earth. You know, it's aware of the earth in some way. You know, there, there's a, a relationship of mutuality there, which, is, which, which one could say is consciousness defined at the lowest possible level. And at higher levels, consciousness is manifested in higher and higher degrees of awareness of the mutuality, which ties everything together. You're talking uh, about a rock, not the rock. <laughs> yes. Okay, I just wanted, just wanted to be clear. Yes. Because if and, you and drop the rock, too, he'll fall down and hit the earth as well. But. Exactly. And, and as Abdu'l-Bahá says, trying to ignore that comment, uh, as... Uh, as Abdu'l-Bahá also says, this interconnectedness that bonds everything together is the very definition of religion. He says that's what religion is in the end. You know, religion consists in the essential relationships that derive from the realities of things. He says that's what it is. And it's, it's strangely enough, in another place, he, he talks about love, and this is in the same love is the secret uh, uh, letter. He says love is the essential relationship that binds together the realities of things. And, and it's still another place where he talks about nature. He says, nature it are the, it consists in the essential relationships that derive you, from the realities of things. You know what it sounds so, like, what you're describing? It sounds like the Tao. Kind of Because you're, you're saying love is unity, is consciousness, is, consciousness. is religion, yes. is that what binds things, that together? Bind things together? And that so. is, uh, the Taoist would say that, that yeah. that's the Tao. Christians might call it the Holy Spirit. I mean, it has different words in different, uh, in, in, in different religious traditions. Mm -hmm. you know, it's it's, a, it's you know, the invisible ties that bind, that draw towards, uh, that, that draw everything towards 
towards the source. And how does this go back to your circle analogy that you started? Because everything, with? you know, the circle is this imagery that everything precedes or emanates. It's, it's an old idea actually from, um, from, from Plotinus, who was um, a, a pagan philosopher during the late Roman Empire, who, who was the first to really articulate this idea of emanation. The idea that everything is an emanation from what he called the one. Uh, and the one was this principle of, of infinite goodness, uh, of infinite truth, of infinite beauty, uh, all three at once, which, uh, which emanates the world in successive, in successive degrees. Uh, this idea of, of emanation and then return is taken up by, you know, it's, it's, it's caught, the thread of this idea is caught historically by the, by, the, by the mystics of Islam who really develop it even further. But isn't it the Buddhist wheel, the wheel of life from Buddhism is, is the same thing? And this that imagery, yes, this imagery of the circle that's turning on itself uh, has maybe even earlier manifestations in the, uh, in the figure of the Ouroboros, the snake that's swallowing its own tail, mm -hmm. which one finds surprisingly, uh, sort of incredibly, again, across you know, different ancient cultures, which which uh, apparently had no connection with each other. So this, this imagery is you know, deeply embedded uh, in, in human consciousness and has been used in a variety, uh, in, in a variety of cultures. Uh, and, it, and it all gives, it, one, can, one can see it as all as manifestations of this, of this common idea that there is a, a continual everlasting process of emanation and return. Uh, you can say it's emanation from God and return to God using that language, but this is just, that's one, that's one narrative language or one narrative framework that, that you can use. You can also use uh, a narrative or a sacred uh, you know, language as, as one does in the, in the philosophies and traditions of the East. It doesn't make direct reference to the, sort of, to the God of the, of the monotheistic traditions, but it's the same idea. It's the same idea ultimately of, uh, of, of the soul c coming to a, um, a, a, an, an awareness uh, of its own essential divinity and being lost and absorbed uh, in that in that divinity, which is the same as the ray returning returning to the sun, um, and ultimately that's that's what religion is. You know, it's it's the love of the creature for the creator. You know, but to say that sentence is already causing because the already, creature is the creator because the creature is the creator, and so this is a, a problem with language. You know, it's a it's a snare that is meant to catch only certain kinds of rabbits. You know, this is actually a statement by Juanza, one of the great Eastern philosophers. He says, um, you know, a, a fish net is made, you know, to catch fish. And once you've caught the fish, you can throw away the net. You know, a rabbit snare is made to catch rabbits. And once you've, once you've caught the rabbit, you can throw away the snare. Words exist to capture meanings. And once you've captured the meanings, you can get rid of the words. Uh, because ultimately the words are not equivalent to the meanings. Uh, and that's very much the case when it comes to all of these spiritual subjects that we're talking about. Anything that lies above the realm of the directly observable, which is just about everything we've been talking about uh, tonight, you know, no one has direct access. No one, no one can say this is actually how it is with the spiritual world. All we can do is use words to try to build models of reality, which we hope are useful, which we hope can solve a problem, which we hope can be a remedy for the illness of the of the age, which is how Baha'u'llah describes his own message. He doesn't describe his message as an eternal, unchanging truth. Uh, in a way it is, in the sense that it embodies this law of love, which is eternal and unchanging. But in another way, he describes his own message as a kind of remedy. You know, he says, I'm the divine physician. He says, I've, I've diagnosed the, the illness of the human race and I've prescribed the remedy. 
And the remedy in this day for the particular illness of the human race uh, is unity. It's the recognition of the unity of the human race. And this is the second axial age that we're potentially going exactly. through right now in exactly. humanity's adolescence, leading hopefully not to our destruction or, you know, our you know, not. death or overdose in rehab, uh, but, but actually humanity's coming out on the other side. And I think you, you mentioned it very well when we started um, that that shift in consciousness from, from self to other. Yes, that shift in consciousness from self to other is mirrored. You know, that, that's at an individual level, a, a way of mapping out the, the, the stages in, in, the spiritual, in the spiritual quest. Uh, and that is mirrored in the, in the development of, of human civilization collectively, you know, from, in, from family units to tribal units to city-states to nations to empires, you know, in, in these expanding circles, which are only made possible when human beings are able to identify with people in larger and larger groups in, in a way that, that retains some kind of solidarity. Um, this is a topic that, that I think Harari deals with very, very well, that it requires an enormous intuitive leap abstract leap, one could call it a spiritual leap, uh, just, just you know, to use that, that word, to, to recognize the, the abstract idea of membership in a group that contains people whom one might not have met personally. You know, it, it, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's kind mm -hmm. of a, an interesting thing when you, when you realize, oh, this is a thing. You know, and that highest This group. is actually a thing. There was a time in human civilization where you could, where the, the tribal, the size of a tribe was limited to the number of people you knew personally. Right. Because you have to trust people in, in, these, right. in, in these prehistoric societies. You, know, you can't, you have to be sure they're not going to stab you in the back or do whatever that can be done because there's no The valley people trust the valley people and the mountain people love right. trust the mountain people. And, uh, and sociologists have, have found that, that the human, even a fair constant throughout history is that we're capable really only of having about 150 friendships. It's called Dunbar's number. Um, and you know, for the sake of argument, it, it's around 150, uh, which sets the limits of the size of a tribe in, you know, way back in time. Um, until this conceptual, this abstract leap of being able to understand the concept of membership in a, in a tribe, maybe from the clothes that you wear or a tattoo that you might have, that, that, that you might uh, uh, have, have um, put on or any other identifying marks, which is an abstract signifier of membership in a larger group. So you see someone with, you know, wearing those clothes and you realize, oh, they're part of my tribe. It's, it's a very, it still exists today. Like I, I saw mean, a kid in a, he's got a, he's got a yeah. Dunder Mifflin t-shirt, so. He's uh, a member of the tribe. I, yeah. I recognize him as a member of a, of a tribe there, so. This, in my experience, is Baha'u'llah's message of seeing the divine in, in, in all of us, that we are all, uh, to quote Tehard de Chardin, you know, we're all spiritual beings having a human experience. Uh, and that this grows that number past 150 or even 150,000 or even 150 million, but to encompass 7 billion uh, lights of God, 7 billion emanations of the divine all around the planet. And we have to unite in that way or we'll perish. Or we'll perish. And, and it includes even to the environment around us. So mm. the inanimate and animate objects that we don't that aren't members of the human species are part of this vision of the of everything which reflects to some degree the light of the divine, which is which is 
included in the, in the totality of the vision of oneness. It's, it's our environment as well. Well, that's beautiful. Uh, thank you uh, very much, uh, Stephen Phelps. Let's give it up. Uh, thanks, for, um, thanks for speaking with me this evening. Um, what, a, what a beautiful, what an exquisite mind. And uh, I, I learned so much and always get so much out of, out of speaking to you. Um, so do we, we have time for a few questions before we... Uh, finish off, we have a, uh, look at that, microphone is making its way to the center aisle. Does anyone have any questions for Dr. Phelps? Or yourself. Or maybe me, <laughs> who knows. Oh, and then we'll force him to play the piano oh, when we're done. <laughs> no chance. No chance. <laughs> yes, sir. So uh, this is about string theory. Uh, <clears throat> Brian Greene, I think, was the author who wrote Elegant Universe. It's published in the mid-90s. So I've been reading that. And in the later chapters, he, he takes the mathematics of string theory, and it begins to point to something like, well, wait a minute. What about no space, no time? But it's pointing in the direction of something of that ilk. And of course, my ears perked up immediately knowing that the next world is, quote, sanctified from time and space, end quote. So I'm not asking you to answer that question definitively, but I'd be very happy to hear your thoughts on it. And uh, I'm also curious to what extent the 15 years later string theory is still being researched and investigated. I know a lot about silly string theory. Uh, you know those cans you shake and they you spray? Uh, I don't, so maybe when you're done with this one, go ahead. Um, yeah, string theory is definitely still a thing. Uh, a lot of people are still working on it. It's unclear whether it is, it is, it is, the, it is the thing. But there are, I think there is a temptation to take certain um, more or less speculative ideas from modern physics and to try to map them onto our, our ideas about what the spiritual world might be. Um, for example, string theory posits the existence of extra dimensions, which, are, uh, which become compacted in some way and, and are, are invisible to the eye. Uh, and it's tempting to think that, well, somewhere in those extra dimensions lies the invisible realm of the spirit. Or um, another example is dark matter. You know, we, we know that the universe is comprised uh, predominantly of some dark form of matter that has never yet been uh, detected uh, directly in a detector, but has only been seen indirectly in its influence on, on galaxies. Uh, and furthermore, that there's dark energy, and there's even more of that, which is even harder, uh, th that is even harder to detect. And it's tempting to say, well, that must be the invisible spiritual dimension that is uh, within us and surrounds us that our, uh, that our instrument, our scientific instrumentation is unable to detect. And I personally don't know, but I, I, am, um, I am suspicious of, of, of these ideas because to me it tends to turn what I believe ultimately transcends the physical into something which becomes very material. It, 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 it strikes me as a very material way of interpreting spirituality, whereas to me, spirituality is not so much an invisible dimension of the physical that, that's, that's somehow there but can't be seen. I think, of, I think of spirituality more as 
as a higher degree of consciousness or awareness. It's, it's manifested in us whenever we think. Um, it doesn't require dark matter. It doesn't require 26 dimensions or 11 dimensions or whatever. It, it just requires a, a higher degree of awareness. And that's, that's what spirituality is to me. And that makes, I don't think that makes it any less real than if one were to ha find a mathematical for formulation of it. Um, my name is Rachel. Uh, thank you guys both for being here today. Um, Rain, I follow you on Instagram. And I saw, I was very curious about a story that you posted um, about a month ago where you pointed to a piece of land behind you and you said, uh, why do we have borders? Why can't we all just get along? And I was thinking about that tonight as we were talking about selflessness and this selfless anchor. So my question is, how can we um, protect our land or even more on a personal level, how can we protect what we believe uh, like politically or religiously while being selfless and not becoming too vulnerable? Uh, thank you for that uh, question. That's very thoughtful. Um, yeah, I was in um, the south of France, and then I was staying right by Italy, and it was like, it just seemed so ridiculous that I was on this one promontory that was France, and then the other next promontory over was Italy, and I was kind of pointing out, kind of on the phone, kind of like, how silly that is, how many wars have happened between these two promontories, how many armies have marched between these two lands, how, how many other demarcations there are uh, between lands and between countries and between nations. And to me, it just, it just feels silly. I felt the same thing when I went down to Mexico and I saw um, you know, the, the walls and the barbed wire that had been built and, the, and the, the border checkpoints and stuff like that. Now, I'm not suggesting an instantaneous elimination of all borders and everyone just, it's a free-for-all, a lawless free-for-all where everyone goes wherever they want. That's not what I'm suggesting, but uh, a, a higher consciousness where, you know, nationalism uh, kind of has been uh, humanity's clarion cry for hundreds of years, you know, my nation. Um, uh, and, and then that kind of simmered away for a while and now it's coming back and we're seeing it not just here in America but a lot of European countries and other countries where, you know, our nationalistic impulse is, is so strong and what Baha'is uh, are working towards is, you know, seeing all of humanity as the flowers of one beautiful garden of humanity on this earth and that we need to drop away, again, all of these differences that plague us and look for the similarities. That doesn't mean that we all become the same. The Baha'i Faith teaches unity and diversity, so we have to honor the great diversity that exists among the races, among the cultures, what every culture brings to the table. It's a, it's a variegated, beautiful garden, but we have to, it's, a, it's part, partially shifting our perspective. And the problems that we're facing are no longer national problems. You know, we're not dealing with the problems of Poland or Austria-Hungary or Portugal or something like that. We're dealing literally with a crisis, an international crisis on the scale of which we've never seen before, which is climate change. This, this crosses all borders. This doesn't have to do with, you know, well, you know, we here in Bolivia have done X, Y, and Z, problem solved. That's not how it's gonna work. Humanity has to take its next step in its great evolution through its painful adolescence to uh, again view, uh, get out of a us, me, we kind of thinking and, and open up our consciousness to, uh, uh, you know, the, the greater human family. So thanks. Thank you.
Yes. Hi. Uh, so you talked a little earlier about how science and philosophy complement each other when you were talking about love now, and the magnet. science and philosophy or science spirituality. and spirituality? Yeah, okay, I just yeah. wanted to... Sorry. Just, no problem. Yeah. <laughs> but I was wondering, do you ever find there are times when science and spirituality kind of contradict each other and there's a struggle between the two? I think if it's true science and true spirituality, I think they're by definition compatible. So if one finds a contradiction between them, what, what I would do is ask, well, is this, is this either pseudoscience or is this superstition masquerading as spirituality? And there's a lot of that in the world today. Uh, well, so the next question is, well, then how does one determine, you know, does one have a litmus test to, to, to determine what is true spirituality from false spirituality? Um, and I think the best litmus test we have ultimately is well, the litmus test that was given in, in, in the Bible, you know, by its fruits, you know, you, you tell if, if it's, it, you, you tell if it's the right thing, if it, if it leads to uh, a greater awareness and, 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 and greater degree of love. If it does, I don't, I don't see how it can contradict um, science. And I'm, I'm open to hearing examples, but I'm not aware of any. Thank you. Yeah. Hi, my name's Angie. Um, so I don't necessarily ascribe to any one religion, but I'm very happy to be here today. And thank you so much for this wonderful discourse. I've been very enthralled, to say the least. Um, so um, essentially, uh, I actually heard about um, this religion actually a few years back, I would say four or five years ago. Um, Rain, you were actually a guest on the Tim Ferriss podcast and had mentioned Baha'i, which was actually my first introduction. And then um, I started mention today's event. So here I am today. Thank you, Tim Ferriss. <laughs> um, and so I guess I had this um, initial spark um, in terms of interest when you had first mentioned it. Uh, and um, anyways, not to uh, dive into that too much, um, I guess my question is, and I apologize if it's not well formulated, I study medicine, not physics or philosophy. Um, though during a lot of my free time, I like to read a lot about quantum physics, specifically philosophy and quantum physics. Mm -hmm. um, so you had mentioned a lot of um, natural order um, and um, you touched a little bit on like dark energy and dark matter. And not to dive too much into that, but you just to take a little step further in terms of like on a more subatomical level, when order is lost, um, as we have found, um, how would you, uh, I guess, like tie that to how we perceive the world and how it's experienced if on a subatomical level? things lose order and nothing makes sense. And it kind of ties into an earlier thing you had mentioned, which is that everyone's perception is different. And so if you kind of go along the lines of quantum physics, if it's the powers kind of within the beholder and how you perceive things actually alters the physical world. So I'm not gonna talk anymore, but in terms of, uh, quantum physics and the loss of order on a subatomical level, how would you explain experiencing the physical world? Um, 
Hard to know exactly how to how to reply to that. It's 27, right? <laughs> 42. Oh. <laughs> it's. I think there is. Um, the, again, there's there's a, a temptation to take the ideas of quantum physics, and particularly the principle of complementarity, which is the weirdest idea and most counterintuitive idea which says that the state of a system will be determined in some way by how you choose to measure it. So if you set up an experiment to, um, to detect particles, you're going to find particles. And you set it up, if you mm -hmm. set it up to detect waves, you're going to find waves. Schrodinger's um, cat. Huh? Schrodinger's cat. Right. Schrodinger's cat and all of that. And there's a, there's a great, I think, temptation to take that and to say, well, uh, I literally will change reality when I look at it, you know, in the same sense that, that a quantum system has changed. Um, and I think this is where I think one has to be a little bit careful in drawing a line between using um, the principles behind quantum mechanics, such as complementarity, as like an archetype that, that, that has, the, from which one can draw um, certain uh, spiritual or, or philosophical insights versus versus using quantum mechanics or thinking of, of, of thinking that that literally you know in, in, a, in a sort of scientific measurement sense uh, a, a quantum effect um, can, can can be real at a macroscopic level I mean, one of the well-known results of, of quantum me mechanics is that the the the, the interconnectedness, the tangledness uh, of, of, of quantum systems uh, at an atomic level decoheres once you, once you reach mac macroscopic levels. And so there are a lot of people and writers um, who talk about quantum effects at a macroscopic level. Um, but as far as I am, I am aware, um, those, have not been, um, those have not been validated you know, by, by science. Thank you so much. Yeah. My name's Halim, Halim Beer, and um, I have listened to many of the talks of the new atheists, and I also have known many atheists throughout my life. Um, I have always loved to present the ideas on the unity of science and religion, how religion and science can be defined in the same terms in the Baha'i writings, mm -hmm. And um, so in these conversations, sometimes the, uh, the materialist, atheist, or otherwise secularist will define science in such a way that th they don't accept my religious embrace of science. And one example of this is even in the world of physics, string theory was mentioned earlier, where some scientists, have I've even heard some physicists say, um, string theory hasn't even produced predictable or uh, reprodu any kind of experimental predictions yeah. that we can test in the laboratory, and therefore it cannot be called a scientific theory. And they're clearly defining science in a particular way <laughs> that um, is much more stringent than the way I understand science when Shoghi Effendi says that uh, Baha the Baha'i faith is scientific in its method, right? As Shoghi Effendi has said, and also the other principles of the unity of science and religion. So I am curious about 
your perspective on how a Baha'i might define science that might reach across the divide toward those other scientists who perhaps are really skeptical of spiritual thought, of religious thinking, and any notion of the existence of a god, right? And in trying to reach across that divide in my conversations, and particularly around the definition of what science is yeah. and how it relates to the pursuit of knowledge. So. I, th I think Carl Sagan said it really well when he said science is more of an approach to the world than it is a body of knowledge. And if we take that as a, a, a starting point, you know, the idea that science is a way of approaching the world. How does it approach the world? It approaches the world analytically. It, it, it approaches the world with humility, you know, that one doesn't have access to, to all information, to all data. But what one does have access to, the, the data that one can collect, the observations that one can make, one creates models that, that describes those observations. And hopefully, that is not in contradiction with any other, any other observations. Uh, and if it's a good theory, it can also make some predictions. Uh, so it's useful for something. You know, it, it, it fully describes the data that, that you've collected, and perhaps it can be used to predict something beyond that. Um, that's the, those, are the, those are the hallmarks of a good scientific theory. And although science utilizes the language of mathematics to make those observations and theories, one can think and, and apply this, this analytic scientific kind of approach to spiritual topics uh, uh, that, that do not submit to the microscope and do not submit to being reduced by equations, but you can still have the scientific approach. And what do I mean by that? You know, as an example, you know, if, if one thinks of, if one takes this image of the cosmos that I was, um, that, that I sketched out, that it's like there's a circle of being and it's all about consciousness and consciousness is constantly, uh, is constantly evolving and constantly coming to know itself into and out of existence on this planet and, and elsewhere throughout the universe. That's a statement which perhaps has some physical implications. You know, first of all, does it contradict anything, any other observations? Um, I'm gonna claim that it doesn't contradict any other, other, other contra uh, observations, but I'm open to hearing you know, physical evidence that contradicts this view of things. But what I think makes it interesting, and, and as a maybe a, as I'm not going to call it a scientific theory, but which it gives it the same kind of um, the, the, the same kind of purchase as a scientific theory, is that it actually makes a prediction. And the prediction that this view of the universe makes is that if life is somehow built into things, if consciousness is somehow going to emerge in a purposeful way, you know, that it's, that, it's, that it's somehow meant to emerge, then one would expect to find life and consciousness everywhere that it's possible to find it. Because it's a tendency, if life is a tendency of matter, then we have a prediction. And the prediction is, as we start investigating other worlds and other planets, we should start finding life and, and intelligence and, and consciousness in various degrees on other planets not necessarily civilized life on every single planet. We're not looking for civilizations on Mars or something like that, but we're, but we're looking for and expecting to find traces of life in greater abundance than if we didn't have this theory. You know, if we didn't have this theory, then we might expect life to be extraordinarily rare. 
we might expect that the fact of life on this planet and intelligent life on this planet is so extraordinarily rare that the only thing that can explain it is the fact that the universe is infinitely large, large enough for all of the possible combinations of things, for every roll of the dice to have been made so that, so that this, you know, this fantastically rare thing of us emerging could possibly happen. That's kind of the best science can do without there being some undergirding principle of life emerging where, where it can. But if we take this as, you know, and think of it scientifically as, you know, and, and, and subject it to the same kind of, uh, of, of scientific analysis, we'd say, okay, make a prediction. I'll say, okay, this is the prediction. There's going to be life on other planets, probably intelligent life, you know. Whether we uh, observe it and detect it in our lifetimes, don't know. Uh, but I think it's possible that within our lifetimes we may make the first observations, perhaps through the, the signatures in the atmospheres of extrasolar planets, of combinations of elements that have no other reasonable explanation to us except that there must be some life process going on. So that's just one example. Um, I think it'd be really cool. It'd be like you know, Star Trek universe, maybe. Who, who knows? You know? But uh, I always thought Star Trek was very similar to the Baha'i faith, right? Oh, yeah. Federation of uh, Yes. I'm Eva. So, uh, 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 my question, I don't know if it's really, uh, okay, well, well, I feel like creative, creativity um, and logic are kind of compared a lot, and uh, so where do you feel like maybe there's like a balance between the two in a way? Because like, um, yeah. Uh, uh, balance between yeah. creativity and logic? logic like, because, you know, I feel like there's certain logical things you need to do to be creative and I feel like to be to have kind of logical thoughts that you need kind of a creative process and yes. um, and I feel like they're similar but like they're also completely different and it's confusing sure so, uh, well the word I mean the word logic comes or maybe they're not um, you know the same at all. and yeah okay yeah. never mind okay so well the, the word logic comes from the Greek for logos and logos is the word that appears in the in the first verse of the gospel of John you know, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Uh, that's a, a kind of a cosmological statement which is repeated in, in its own way in, in the Baha'i writings and, and, and I think in other traditions as well. And the word logos is, uh, is translated as word, but it can also be translated as ordering principle, and it comes from the same root as logic. And so there's this idea, a spiritual idea, that the originating principle of things is fundamentally logical because it orders and structures things. And so there's a, there's a cosmic reason to believe that logic is a thing and that it's not just a thing, but it's you know, one of the most uh, key, you know, one of the key principles of the, you know, of the, uh, of the world. And likewise, creativity, because this, lo this logos, the, the, the one of the Plotinus, is an infinitely creative force. Um, and it's creative in the sense that it is, it is eternally emanating in infinite forms. It's as though the, the one wants to be known in as many ways as possible. You know, and, and so it creates every possible combination of things because that's how, one, uh, th that's how it, can, um, it can be best known and loved. You know, in that sense, this is just off the top of my head, that's how something like logic and creativity then in this you know, cosmic vision of things are, um, are closely intertwined and, um, and are both, I don't know, pillars of the, pillars of the order. Good answer. Great. Hi, I apologize because my question isn't very simple. Um, so it might kind of need a lot of, of answering. Um, 
but I mean, you were mentioning how everything has an order. You know, us, you know, looking here at the most complex form of order and consciousness, and so do rocks and minerals, you know, and they have their own sense of order. And this order has a purpose, you know, evolutionary-wise, you know, everything has a purpose to fulfill. You know, the, the rocks, you know, I was reading the writings, you know, the rocks, their purpose to fulfill is to exist, and they do so well. And, you know, the purpose of the vegetable kingdom is to, is to spread life and to grow and reproduce. And, you know, purpose of the animal kingdom, you know, keep the ecosystem in check. Predators eat prey, prey, you know, fulfill that need. Um, and so being here, you know, looking at us um, as, you know, at that most complex form of consciousness and order, how can we scientifically and religiously, spiritually as well, you know, unified in that answer, explain our purpose on this world? So how can we explain our purpose in light of, of, of every physical thing having a purpose? Yeah, I mean, you know, looking at the world, poverty, war, um, disunity, you know, global warming, pollution, aren't these all manifestations that we're doing something wrong and that yeah. there is a purpose that yeah. we need to fulfill? So how can we explain this? One way to put it in, you know, in the context of today and in the context of the, you know, the, the, the critical junction that humanity is currently in is that our, our purpose is to recognize as fully as possible the spiritual unity of the human race and to be catalysts for the, the wider acceptance uh, and emergence of this as a, as, as a principle undergirding you know, the, the civilization that, that, that we're building, you know, the global civilization that, that is emerging. Um, that sums it up for me, and, and that's, you know, that, that also can be summed up, that itself can be summed up in, in a single word, which is, which is love. But isn't that also the quote from the Bob the, of raising something up to its highest potentiality? Yes. Like the highest potentiality yeah. of a rock. Rocks get buried or become coal and then get crushed and become diamonds. Like it's, yeah. uh, it becomes mm. its highest state mm. of itself. And humanity, uh, both individually and collectively, are striving to become the equivalent of the rock becoming a diamond, whatever that is, mm -hmm. to be a source of light, a source of heat, healing, a source of emanation of, of love and, and unity. And that's, that's the highest state that, that we, can, uh, yeah. we can strive for. Yeah. The Baha'i writings say that, that human reality should be seen as a mind which is rich in gems of inestimable value. Uh, and it's, it's, it's education that, that minds yeah, and brings these gems to light within the, the inner reality of the, of, the, of the human being. You know, another way of thinking about our purpose is, is discovering what those gems are. Uh, and, and the mining, you know, comes with effort. Hello, I have two questions. Sorry, you can't. Sorry, you only get one. <laughs> I'll combine them then. Um, the concept of emanation... Security, take them out. <laughs> <laughs> you were talking about the concept of emanation, and within the same writing, Baha'u'llah talks about the concept of pre-existence and the first intellect. So that's before creation. I wanted to know your perspective of it, and then in continuation, Baha'u'llah um, tells us that uh, manifestations have the knowledge of God. So they pretty much know everything about science, but they can only give us what we understand. And Baha'u'llah gave us the concept of splitting the heart of Adam, and long behold, you would find the sun. And finally, we, 
were able to see that happening by smashing atoms together. But another concept that I'm curious about after the creation um, is this writing that Baha'u'llah, which you touched on it briefly, I just want to get a little bit more glimpse of where science is right now in regards to this. He says in Gleanings that, no doubt that every fixed star had its own planets, and every planet its own creatures, whose numbers no man can compute. So that's several questions. The answer to that, that second question. <laughs> I combined them. That was like five wow, questions. Wow, that was a lot of questions. I'll just sit down. I'll partially answer a couple of them, I guess. I mean, one is, yeah, so there's a statement by Baha'u'llah. It's my, 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 my proposal that this picture of life as being emergent and somehow intrinsic to, to the universe leads us to expect that we're probably going to find life elsewhere uh, is, of course, inspired by the, that quotation that you just, that you just read, uh, where the founder of the Baha'i Faith himself says, there is life elsewhere. Uh, as far as I know, you know, the, the first prophet historically to talk about life on other planets. And, and there, are other, uh, there are many other places in the Baha'i writings that, that also mention that this life is conscious to some degrees. Um, so the, so there, there is that. Um, your point about the, um, uh, well, your, your question about emanation and pre-existence and so forth just made me want to reiterate that that all of the language we use to describe anything beyond the world of appearances is ultimately going to fail at some point. It, at best, it's going to be a model that should be taken for what it's worth. And what it's worth is determined by how useful it is in the world and is it going to solve a problem. Um, and if it solves a problem to talk about the different degrees of divine emanation you know, beyond this material world, to the you know to, to the ultimate essence, um, then then you know let's build that model, uh, and, and I'm not sure how useful it is you know because ultimately we don't know what's beyond there. Um, we, one of the principles of the of, of the Baha'i writings ultimately is that that divine reality that 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 we have that has been called God is ultimately beyond all names and attributes, which is to say it is actually beyond the attribute of singleness versus plurality. It's beyond the attribute of existence versus non-existence. It's beyond the attribute of being an object of knowledge versus being the subject that's, that's doing, that, that's, that, that, that's acting and, and knowing. And so for this conception of the divine which transcends all of the categories of thought, which breaks all of the rules of grammar, you can't use language without forcing this concept into the categories of language, nouns, verbs, adjectives, subjects, objects. And if the reality that ultimately we're trying to grasp cannot be captured in those categories, you know, it's a, it's a net, you know, grammar is a net that's designed to catch fish and we're trying to capture the water with the net, you know, it can't be done. Um, and, and, which isn't to say that, there's a, you know, that there, there may be a great deal written um, in the faith traditions of the world, in the Baha'i writings itself, about the relationship between these different degrees of spiritual existence. Um, ultimately, we have to, to, to step back with, with some humility and realize that, um, that we have no way of determining what's true or false in these things. And, and, and ultimately, 
we should uh, we should judge them based upon uh, upon their usefulness. Thank you uh, again, uh, Dr. Stephen Phelps. Let's give it up. Thank you. Thanks very much for coming, you guys. Thanks so much. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to Baha'i Blogcast. Hope you enjoyed the episode and the conversation. Check out more fun Baha'i stuff on Baha'iblog.net. Thank you so much 